0: I mean, the
1: culture says that the worst thing that could possibly happen when you become a mother is that you might lose yourself, right? And so this idea that we're actually not meant to change at all, but yeah, our culture says don't change. And we're not supported with social policy to kind of like fully come undone in motherhood. We have to return to work right away, a lot of us. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yet motherhood and that transition to motherhood is has always been and is meant to be a rite of passage
0: hello and welcome to the feminist mom podcast i'm your host Erin spar i'm a licensed therapist feminist and mother of two join me and my guests each week as we chat about what it's like mothering in today's society We'll point out the double standards mothers face and unpack the conflicting societal messages we receive. We'll name out loud how the patriarchy and other systems of oppression impact our experiences of motherhood. This podcast is for you if you appreciate honest and smart conversations that will validate your experiences, promote discussion, and empower you to mother on your own terms. I'm so happy you're here to join me in this conversation today with Jessie Harold. Jessie is a coach and doula who's been supporting women through radical life transformations and other rites of passage for over a decade. She works one-on-one with women and mothers, facilitates mentorship programs, women's circles and rituals, and hosts retreats and wilderness quests. Jessie is also the author of the project, Body Love, My Quest to Love My Body and the Surprising Truth I Found Instead, as well as the forthcoming title, Mother Shift, Reclaiming Motherhood as a Rite of Passage. Jessie's work has been featured in Spirituality and Health, Green Parent, Expectful, and Explore Magazine. She's also the host of the Becoming podcast. Jessie lives on the east coast of Canada, where she mothers her two children, writes, and tends the land. So before I play our conversation, one thing that came to mind as I was reflecting on our discussion was this quote from Sarah Menkadek, who is the author of a book called Ordinary Insanity, Fear, and the Silent Crisis of Motherhood in America. Came out a few years ago. And there was this quote that I think of often, which was that postpartum depression might be the only ritual American mothers have to express their grief. That quote really stuck with me. um, And I think it's something that Jesse and I, I think we're really kind of talking about today, which is that in our so called Western culture, We expect mothers to feel joyful, and we expect mothers to add things to their plate, but we don't really expect or talk about or support mothers in processing all all that changes, all that they've lost. And some of those losses are really hard and some of those losses are really good for us. And so, you know, you can feel grief and sadness and when you're feeling that alone and you don't feel like you know why or you maybe feel like you're not supposed to feel it, that can really add to a sense of maybe depression or anxiety Right, because part of that is feeling like there's something wrong. We can look at these experiences through that kind of clinical lens, and I'm a therapist. I see folks who have postpartum depression and anxiety, and it's complicated. It's complex. I'm not going to say it's all because you know of one thing, but I do think what Jessie and I talk about, and what she really works really hard on, is really illuminating the fact that we don't offer a lot of rituals and uh, rites of passage as she discusses for mothers going through this transformation and a transformation is going to come with loss and grief and rage and fear and all a lot of feelings that some folks get stuck in um so I think it's a really important conversation and um I hope you I hope you enjoy it. Hello, welcome. I'm here with Jesse Harold. Jesse, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. This is a really special treat. Thank you. So, I found you I think for the first time listening to you on the podcast The Good Enough Mother. Um hosted by Dr. Sophie Brock, who is wonderful, and I really enjoyed listening to you talk about matrescence and specifically um, kind of the experience of going in between phases and roles and, and kind of how that can feel really destabilizing for a while, but also you did a really great job of like normalizing and explaining it. Um so that's how I found you and, and I think I've been following you on on social media for a little while. But why don't you go ahead and expand on that and let folks know about your motherhood journey but also your work with the mothers.
1: Yeah, certainly. Great. Um yeah, so I am the mom of two people um <laughs> who are 11 and 8 as of this recording. Um and professionally i've been a doula for uh over 15 years now so that's kind of how i came into my work with mothers um and you'll note by those time frames that i was a doula before i was a mom so um to make a really long story kind of podcast bite sized um when i went to think about becoming a mother myself a lot of the questions that i think many mothers have before they give birth are about like what's going to happen on that day or, you know, let's face it, a couple of days maybe um, Mm -hmm. of birth and like maybe the immediate postpartum. But those were territories that I had already spent a lot of time traversing. Not to say that I knew what was going to happen necessarily, but that I kind of understood them well. And so my attention was turned to what's going to happen to me afterwards, like after mm. I've healed, what's going to happen to me? me? And so some of those questions, along with the support of a mentor who um, kept reminding me, she was my doula also, um, kept reminding me that the transition to motherhood takes two to three years. Mm. And so I was kind of primed to think about matrescence, about this I mean, Matrescence encompasses, you know, the biological, the social, the economic, the, uh, you know, all of these different realms of our lives that change when we become mothers, and I sort of really focus in on that identity shift into motherhood, and so I was really primed to ask those questions, and it became slowly um, my career path, and really starting to work with, you know, yeah, what happens to us as human beings. After we've kind of gone through that roller coaster time of maybe healing after birth and those emotional <laughs> highs and lows that we might experience, like what happens to who we are. And so that's really forms the basis of a lot of the work that I do with mothers now,
0: mm, just even even asking the question of like, what becomes of mothers after, is sort of radical, <laughs> right? Really? Right. There's all this focus on, understandably, the baby, right? Very, yeah. very important part of all of this. But even sort of focusing on maternal shifts and identity yeah. really feels almost counter to what the culture really supports and cares about. Um, can you talk a little bit about about that? Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of layers to that.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, So, I mean, big picture, our culture generally does a pretty poor job of, I, I should say, our Western, you know, white culture tends to sure. do a pretty poor job of recognizing and honoring rites of passage full stop, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there is sort of this overlying social condition that makes it really tricky. Um, you know, we've got this tendency to want to ask mothers to kind of return to their former selves, their pre-kid self, or at least, you know, I, 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 this idea of like denying the fact of your motherhood in order to participate in the world feels like um, one that, you know, is an undercurrent. So, mm-hmm. so we're kind of saying like, don't change right? And so there's a couple of other things going on here too, which is that – and this is a tricky – so I want to just enter into this saying This is tricky and nuanced. But in our culture, we have um, sort of a couple of different ways to look at the rite of passage into motherhood. And we, we look at it often through the lens of like mental health challenges. Like that's the only – way sometimes mm-hmm. that we get sort of witnessing and honoring and I mean if we do um acknowledgment of the kind of tumultuousness of that rite of passage mm-hmm. and also when we look at the transition into motherhood with a rite of passage lens mm-hmm. we are able to normalize some things about that transition that we otherwise can't. So, with a rites of passage lens, two really important sort of developmental tasks, as it were, are grief and loss, and the acknowledgement that you actually are leaving behind a former self. Mm-hmm. And there may be no getting that self back, mm-hmm. or maybe not on your timeline. Like
0: mm-hmm. maybe
1: eventually you will drink hot coffee again, but it might not happen this year or next mm-hmm. year. Um, right. So and, and like allowing us the opportunity as mothers, as a collective of mothers to grieve that loss. Mm-hmm. You know, we mm-hmm. could go down a whole other rabbit trail here that says like our culture doesn't even know how to grieve.
0: Right. Right. <laughs> even just sitting with feelings, especially the hard feelings is is not something that our culture is. Is good at, right? We want to fix it, we want to optimize, you want to buy something we can do to change it, medicate it, which you know, sometimes there's a place for that for Mm -hmm. sure. But yes, we tend to not know how to just sit with, be with all of those human emotions, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. So looking at that sort of grief and loss piece is a huge part. Also, like we can lump ambivalence into there, like. Sometimes this really sucks. Sometimes I regret motherhood. Sometimes I wish it was seven years ago when I wasn't a mother, et cetera, and normalize Mm -hmm. that. And rage, you know, we can also normalize that sort of mix of emotions in there. Um, Then the second thing that a rites of passage lens allows us to do is to be in the liminal space. And we kind of talked about that earlier. The liminal is this sort of, I'm not not a mother anymore, (laughs) but I don't feel fully embodied in this motherhood role. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, when somebody calls out mom at the playground, I'm like looking around wondering who they might be talking about, right? Sure. Um, And this liminal space is also super counterculture, very unsexy, because it means that we don't know who we are. We don't know where we're going. We don't have a nice, tidy list of goals and accomplishments. We're not really participating in the worlds of goals and accomplishments as much as we used to be able to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, We're beginners, right? You're a beginner. You can't possibly be a master at it, but yet there is an expectation there that we should
1: yes. be. And that liminal space lasts longer than we ever want it to. <laughs> yeah. And we don't know what to do in that either, right? And so what I see in my practice is mothers who are either sort of scrambling back to the way things were, like trying to recreate the conditions of their pre-motherhood life with mm-hmm. a baby, um, mm-hmm. which sometimes is awesome and works, and a lot of time also can cause a tremendous amount of suffering. Um, or we see people who are kind of pushing forward into what we might call like the new normal, right? And and actually um, finding their new normal looking a lot like the old normal, you know, and and not actually finding themselves transformed in that experience. So these two like really challenging pieces is like sitting in the grief and loss and hanging out in this liminal space are normalized within a rites of passage lens. They're mm-hmm. extremely counterculture in kind of our wider experience. But what's really interesting about taking that rites of, pa- so, so rites of passage then would normalize like really challenging stuff about motherhood. Um, yeah. In ways that we don't have language for in our culture, we don't have mm-hmm. practices to support in our culture, um, and I think, actually, well, I know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's actually research that has been done that that shows that looking at motherhood as a rite of passage through this lens of like, yep, it's really hard, and it's filled with power and potential in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Looking at this transformation with that sort of knowing um, is actually protective against postpartum depression. So this one mm-hmm. study, and I'm going to not remember the, the authors of the study, but showed that um, mothers showed like lower reported symptoms of postpartum depression in their entire first year after having a baby, when kind of taking this sort of broader perspective on what this transformation might mean mm-hmm. that is really compelling to me um and i think this like the rites of passage lens allows us to kind of broaden the perspective um, make it really both and and make that be normative and it doesn't mean don't get help It doesn't mean don't you know get the support that you need but also you know this is a time of disorientation and discomfort mm-hmm and that's also okay.
0: Yeah, that really fits like for me as a therapist with kind of the the things I like to, you know, pack my pregnant clients with to kind of take them on their postpartum journey is sort of kind of what you're saying, which is sort of, you're gonna feel this, and you might gonna feel that, and it doesn't mean there's a problem until it is a problem, and then we can talk about where that line is. But sort of right, like normalizing that you're gonna feel wobbly, and it's everything's gonna the world might feel really big all of a sudden, and things that didn't scare you now feel threatening. And part of it is just figuring out how to move through it, and that you won't always feel that wobbliness, right? But but that you have to kind of go through it. And, you know, I, I think something that people are talking about is, you know, we're missing, right, that sense of the village, the community, particularly, I think, of let's say like other mothers, elders, right, um, to sort of help guide us. And I think we tend to look at experts and look to the mental health, you know, folks online to kind of give us some of that. But it's kind of missing that experience of being like in your community. Hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, I hear you. And I also like I hold this question, and it's just a question i'm holding i have no idea what the answer is but i feel like we are mothering in some pretty unprecedented times and so i've wondered i've actively wondered like how do our elder mothers and you know the folks who might have gone through this journey several decades ago how how can they inform our own developmental sort of process? And how much are we also on top of all of the things that we're contending with, how much are we also kind of making the path as we walk it?
0: Mm-hmm. I, I don't share know that question. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's there's sort of this in like folks who kind of talk about rites of passage also tend to talk about the lack of Elders in -hmm. our world. So, like, uh, Stephen Jenkinson is someone who's famous for saying, like, we have a lot of old people, but we don't necessarily have a lot of elders, like people who kind of hold steep wisdom and who are real mentors and guides along the path. Um, And so, that's, I invite that kind of into this question. Like, yeah, we might have people who have come before us, but perhaps we're lacking. Eldership in mm-hmm. this transformation
0: totally i mean i I identify as sort of a big sister, I am a big sister, yeah. and I sort of feel like we have like that kind of maybe mentorship folks for maybe a couple years ahead. Ten, you know my oldest is almost eleven, so I feel like I have some experience to offer the the newbies, but I think, yeah, I think things have shifted, and I see folks you know, even just how we think about parenting has shifted, you know, um, and I, I see folks actually acknowledging that, that kind of mm-hmm. the, there there seems like there's some thread that must be similar, right? <laughs> but it does feel in some ways that there were kind of worlds apart. And maybe every generation feels that way. I don't know, from the, from the previous generation. I know the, the boomer generation, I, I think of as really kind of embracing like youthfulness, wanting mm-hmm. to be, kind of be free and young forever and sort of almost that feels almost counter to kind of this idea of really um uh, even allowing age you know thinking about like the diet industry in the 90s and the 2000s and kind of this like focus on being youthful and fitting a certain ideal like I think we see a lot of folks kind of in that place still and sort of now millennial Gen X, Gen Z parents are kind of trying to shift the direction, you yeah. know? Yeah, um, Yeah, I hear
1: you. I think, so as I was doing some of the research for my book on matrescence, I was doing some exploration of, and like this will kind of loop us back around to feminism, the sort of history of um, feminism as it intersects with, intersects with motherhood and also like power and motherhood. And one of the big things that I noticed was that we do this pendulum swing, right? Mm-hmm. Like where um you know, mothers are the only ones who can hold power. And now we swing that pendulum to motherhood isn't particularly special at all and all people can hold power and you know, and, and we did that with career. We sort of said yeah. like mothers belong in the home. And then we did this pendulum swing that said, no way we have to deny the fact of our motherhood in order to, partic- to participate in the workforce. And like, so there's this yes. this kind of reaction, like totally. this reactive quality of our kind of cultural understandings of motherhood and I think maybe that's where I kind of get this idea of like making the path as we walk it because I think I, I would hate to see us react to and then swing the pendulum back around the total other way
0: which I think yeah. we are,
1: we see in our yeah we see, yeah, culture, we see that. right uh on Instagram you mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. see us do that and and I'm I'm quite curious about how you know, it does feel like we're creating an entirely different culture, an entirely different way of considering what feminism and motherhood looks like. That's not mm-hmm. like a reaction to that of our foremothers, but actually like a, a
0: you know, what integration. <laughs> I like to think of it, can we integrate, can we integrate what we've learned and take the pieces rather than like you're sure. saying, the react. I always sort of wish for that integration, uh-huh. that nuance totally. I know that's been like even in my personal journey. I was
1: kind of reflecting before we came on together to record this. Like a lot of my feminist path as a mother has been um y- y- you know, I'm I'm not going to do it that way. So I'm going to do it this totally opposite way. Oh, crap. That's not serving me either. So, you know, and ultimately kind of yeah, following this pendulum and finally now I feel like and maybe I just keep doing this over and over again in my motherhood I don't know but like finally now I'm starting to feel like a sense of um really like finding my own way yes integration as opposed to this reactivity to the way I was mothered or to the world around me or to ideologies that I see portrayed on Instagram or whatever you might want to you know all of those different influences
0: but I think it's it's a lot to contend with Absolutely. Yeah. I I want to get it into your experience if you if you're willing. But before that, one question that's coming up for me that I'm imagining maybe some folks listening are thinking about. What about dads? What about them? Do they right? Do they, you know, we have to kind of give up everything and change and and lose ourselves and all of this. And, and it feels like maybe fathers don't have to Maybe don't have to. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. even how to put it, but maybe mm-hmm. they don't go through this, or maybe they should go through this. Or so, what are your thoughts on on the what well, about dads question?
1: I have so many thoughts <laughs> about that. I feel like we could have a whole podcast, maybe even a whole podcast series on this. <laughs> yeah. So, like, short answer, you know, when say I'm sitting down with a client and the male partner says, "What about dads?" Um. You know, I think yes can go through this enormous transformation, and really hope they do. Yeah, um, but it's not a sort of imperative in a lot of ways. And I think, right. I think uh, there's a great number of partners who who don't because there's you know if there's not much of a culture around this rite of passage for mothers, um, there's even less. Or fathers, or non-birthing, non-primary parents, um, and you know when I'm talking to people who I'm working with that are you know whose like female partner is birthing the baby, you know from the moment you like feel sore boobs and think that it might be right pee on the stick, whatever that is, you're kind of jolted into the transformation of matrescence like Mm -hmm. sometimes wonderfully and sometimes kicking and screaming but you don't have a lot of choice and it's happening and already even in those first like nauseous weeks your life is changing and you're having to contend with that and you have a constant physically embodied experience that nothing's going to be the same Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and you know, we could kind of pull back and think that a lot of us as female humans have been conditioned to, to mother, to want motherhood, to nurture, to all of these things that Mm -hmm. have given us like a lot of practice, even if just in the sort of container of our own minds, a lot of practice in, you know, what, it might look like to be a mother, what it might look like to be nurturing, what might it might look like to be a quote unquote good mother, or even just thinking about motherhood and our reactions and responses to that that's like alive within us in a lot yeah. of ways, whereas men are not socialized that way, right and it, so so imagine you're this dude sitting across from me at the first you know prenatal meeting, like what happens to dads? You know, oftentimes, like, the idea of becoming a parent is really um, abstract until there's a baby in your hands. Mm -hmm. And then maybe if you choose it, if you're open to it, the rite of passage might begin. And it probably takes a lot longer. It probably or can include a lot of the same steps that it might for mothers, including letting go of that sort of pre-parenthood life. And also we live in a culture that, you know, would handily allow you to bypass that. Yeah. As a as there's a, a privilege there to be able to
0: totally bypass that.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think there's also this like really, really um rich potential, particularly for male partners, because the act of parenting and being a, oh, my goodness, I don't want to say an involved dad because that is just so like <laughs> to think that that's mm-hmm. like our lowest common denominator standard, right? Um, but like to to be a like a fully embodied father also requires a huge amount of unlearning of toxic masculinity. and That is a whole rite of passage in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And again, like, I think maybe partners get to choose it or not. Um, I think, like, I mean, speaking from my own personal experience, it was often, it has often been my rage at Mm -hmm. the just abject unfairness of it all that has catalyzed my partner into really kind of looking at his privilege, his sort of ingrained Mm. ideas of masculinity and fatherhood and all of these things. Um, Yeah. Anyways, I could go on, but it's going to take a while. Mm. It's probably not going to start until this baby is born. And you have to kind of, in a lot of ways, you have to find your own way because particularly for birthing mothers and maybe people who are choosing to breastfeed, there's a lot of biological imperative. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of nature as opposed to nurture. There's nurture too um awesome. yeah. that kind of <clears throat> hands our role to us on a bit of a silver platter you know like it's right there you know and for our male partners they kind of maybe have to figure it out for themselves in a lot of ways like what how what kind of a parent do you want to be what are you good at um how are we going to navigate this together um there's a lot more up in the air i think in a lot of ways um yeah so it's a, it's a whole thing. I really hope there's some people working on that because
0: it's not me. <laughs> <Right>? but... <laughs> yeah, th- me too. But I, I, I hope, I hope there, there are people working on that. I think there are some men I'm seeing kind of come yeah. to the surface to try mm-hmm. to like mentor other men. But I definitely think that is a huge part of what mothers experience is. The fact that fathers are like trying, maybe trying to parent, really without a map, right? Mothers sometimes feel like they have no map, but we have maybe some template, like you're saying, because mm-hmm. of the all of the nurturing socialization mm-hmm. that we get. Mm-hmm. And so many mothers are then having to right, parent their partners, like you're mm-hmm. describing, that rage feeling is so mm-hmm. relatable for myself and other mothers I talk to that it's, it's, again, it's on us to try to now undo toxic masculinity and help our partners like think about what kind of parent they want to be they're not asked those questions yeah. right yeah. Um, so what a burden it can feel like on top of your own matrescence journey
1: absolutely
0: right mm-hmm. Um to also try to be managing fathers so we certainly need that somebody work on that please <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, yeah, so I guess um, we can go in a bunch of different directions. I guess I'm wondering, for you, like, can you say more about, um, like, you mentioned feminism, right? One question mm-hmm. I'm asking people are like, do you consider yourself a feminist mother? And what does that what the heck does that mean? Um, in practice, and you alluded a little bit to this sort of mm-hmm. reaction back and forth. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that all day long, my friend. Yes. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I do consider myself a feminist mother. It was interesting when you said you said these questions in in advance. And in some ways, I'm like, this is just baked in. This is how I work. How am I a feminist mother? (laughs) And yeah, I mean, there's so many different ways to answer that question and how that looks. Um, Maybe I can give like, a really high level vignette, because it's looked so many ways. But My mother was, um, I sort of came from a really different background than most people of my generation. My mother was a very, is a very accomplished scientist. Um, Back in the day when that was a man's field, you know, she was made fun of for being pregnant. She still prides herself on the the months, whatever it was that she was on maternity leave after I was born, she wrote more academic papers than any other male colleague in her division. And so, you know, when I talk about like having to deny your motherhood in order to keep up in sort of this patriarchal capitalist world, I'm really talking about what I perceive to be my mom's experience. Um, And so you know, like daughters do. I swung in the opposite direction when I had kids. I really perceived that I I didn't want my career to be the number one thing. I didn't want my career to take me away from my kids was kind of like the thoughts that I was having about that at the time. And I think, you know, I saw myself as maybe having different opportunities that my mom couldn't have taken advantage of. So like this idea, I was probably kind of raised with this idea that like women can do anything. And I love that feminism for us. And also (laughs) we live in a world that makes that really tricky sometimes. So so like my pendulum swung the other way in a lot of ways. And I wanted to be self-employed and therefore kind of, well, I had this, this hashtag when I first started my business, it was like in my mind, a hashtag it wasn't actually on social media called Cookies in September. I wanted to be able to, when my daughter went to school at the age of five or six or whatever it was, I wanted to be able to, like, pick her up after school and either literally or metaphorically have cookies waiting for her after school. So it was kind of like this, yeah, it was a huge pendulum swing from, being raised by a nanny um and and so I worked really hard to start my own business and make it so that that would be possible
0: mm-hmm.
1: and like I think both of those choices were feminist in their own ways you know and they also came with a ton of privilege and I want to acknowledge that that I even had that kind of possibility um, and also I think like I, you know In the last sort of five, six years, including the pandemic, like being in that role of um, really primary parent, like really, really primary Mm. parent who's Mm -hmm. at home with the cookies and kind of squeezing my life around the life of my kids a lot, a lot more than usually feels comfortable. (laughs) Like something kind of broke in me. mid pandemic, like a lot of us, you know, Um, and you know, I was, I was able to see more clearly some of the ideals that I was holding myself to, in that sort of big pendulum swing in the other direction. And realizing that sort of my happy place and my authenticity was somewhere in between that I deeply love my career. I'm also like deeply introverted, and need so much time to myself. Same. Time Same.
0: I, wish,
1: I wish anybody had told me that when oh. I was uh, when I was a new mother and wondering, like, it, it, what was wrong with me, because I didn't want to spend actually very much time. Um, yeah. Say it loud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I think like the undercurrent here has been, you know, it's been tangling with, um, I want to say, like, ideologies of feminism like the mm-hmm. women can do anything ideology or that maybe this sort of like cult of domesticity which is not really feminism maybe <laughs> but like this idea of what femininity might look like or what women do
0: maybe mm-hmm. um it's and been like co-opted right it's like, sort of like it's been co-opted but it could be it could be feminist to embrace it labeled you know me. domestic labor, right? But totally. it's not packaged in, that way. Totally. And I think in
1: so many ways, like my my choice to kind of move away from that career track felt really feminist because I was saying like I am not up for these friggin' eight hour days and you know, not having any grace when my kids are sick and like having to work from home with pink eye and all this bullshit that was right that was yeah. that I was kind of, you know, I realized now that I was sort of um, finding whatever choice I had within a system that d- still dehumanized its workers, right? Um, but it f- felt very feminist at the time and then and then and then it stopped feeling that way. And I think like <laughs> I think that there's these cycles and seasons to the way um, to the way I'm kind of guided to have my my feminism and like really my humanity. At the forefront of my mothering experience and my experience as, you know, a family member in this, you know, four, four person unit of very complicated individuals. And I think, yeah, I mean, one of the really cool ways that this showed up when I sort of went through a m- burnout in the middle of the pandemic, I had decided to homeschool my kids, like decided to not online schooling, but actually decided to like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do homeschooling. This is so cool. This is what I've always wanted to do. And had like a major cognitive dissonance when that was like not how I thought it was going to be. Um, And maybe not really what I'm cut out for. (laughs) And um, you know, during the pandemic, my daughter went through and is still going through um, a pretty major mental health crisis And, you know, as the person in our household who was primary caregiver, but also sort of the most emotionally attuned, both because it's my profession and because it's my gender, I was dealing with all of Mm -hmm. that, all of it. And, And, you know, my partner and I finally came to a real turning point, almost a breaking point when I couldn't anymore. And I had sort of prided myself on being able to manage that and had, you know, had this really sort of like I guess I see it now as sort of role justification. But at the time it was like, okay, I'm really best at this. And so you do the things you're best at and I'm gonna do the things I'm best at. And it worked for a long time for us until it didn't. And and we had this real come to Jesus and I was like, listen, you have to unlearn a lot of what you were taught about what it means to be an emotionally attuned human you've got stuff that you need to work through and you need to be able to show up for this kid um in different ways and in more attuned ways and and basically I was like therapy or divorce my friend and it was yeah and so we chose therapy that was great. And, and learned how to kind of attune to our daughter better because I couldn't anymore. And so it was like this next level or this new season of how feminism was showing up in our partnership. Um, like no longer was I able to kind of take on the level of emotional labor because the level of emotional labor went through the roof. Um, yeah, but it's tricky. It's Mm -hmm. so tricky.
0: Thank you for sharing that. I I know that's vulnerable to talk about, but it also it feels so relatable. And I know there's somebody listening who's like in a similar position. I think we're like at a, a tipping point, I think as a generation actually of couples kind of going through that to some degree, right? This idea of like therapy or divorce. And, um, you know, some folks are, are getting divorced because I think with the women are realizing that we we can't do it all anymore we don't want to do it all it's too hard and so we're asking men to step up in ways that they were never prepared for and right so part of like being a feminist parent is like how do we prepare our kids right that's another question for partnership um but yeah I just I think what you're describing is such a common theme. Something I recognize in my own relationship, right? This idea of like, I'm I'm good at the emotional stuff. I I've got skills, I've got confidence, but it's it's so draining. And that's part of the exhaustion, the needing time away, needing somebody else to take the load. Like, you know, okay, I just performed this feat of sitting with these big emotions and responding as, as intentionally as I could. Well, now I'm spent. Somebody else needs to take it over, right? And that feeling that when that's not shared with a partner, can feel, really can just breed that resentment, right? Uh, That sense where that we're alone. Um, And so I think that is like a really, unfortunately, a common dynamic. So yeah, I'm glad it's worked out for you guys that that it sounds like he's, (laughs) or you're in process, right? It's like never like over, right? We're always trying to Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I have so much compassion for, you know, like I alluded to earlier for this work, like this unlearning that our male partners are doing because it's really big work and like they're not socialized to do it. I can't even imagine how that must feel. I remember, and I I don't think he will mind me saying this. Hi honey. Um, that like when I said therapy divorce, he was like, but I'm not broken. I am not broken. You don't need to be broken to go to therapy. You know, it like you are dealing as I am with a kid who's going through major mental health crisis. We've had a pandemic, your job sucks. Um like all of these things like you're just a human. Of course, you need therapy. <laughs> but yeah, and that's so I I felt that that was important to say because I think like I would have never even thought that that was kind of the his go-to thought process there, especially having a partner who's in a therapeutic profession. Um, And so I I imagine that it must be a narrative that's going through a lot of other men's minds like that kind of getting some outside support to work through some of these really toxic narratives we've been living is okay and normal actually.
0: Right. And without the elders and without the community, therapy is sort of the kind of the best resource we have. You know, one of my hopes is that this is the kind of podcast where maybe moms listen and they send it to their partners, male partners, and maybe listen. So I think there is a, I think a way that I'm hoping more men, I think some Men are doing this, but sort of step up and and get that support because it's such a gift to themselves and to their partners to not have to put that also on on their partners, right? And of course to our kids, right? Um, so I think, yeah, the more we can plug that uh, resource, the better. Yeah, and then speaking to just back to the matrescence kind of uh, journey. Right, we hear a lot of times mothers have a hard time letting go of control, right? And and sort of one of the terms that that is used is maternal gatekeeping, and I think a big part of that is not trusting partners. Too. partners haven't been able to maybe um, demonstrate their reliability, their attunement, um, and I often will sometimes suggest when one partner is carrying a lot of anxiety to sort of actually have the other partner can you carry more of the anxiety can you show that you are tuned in and 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 worried and you know in a healthy enough way to some of the things that your partner is because it's hard for i think us when we're new as mothers and we don't feel confident we don't know what the baby has a fever how much tylenol do i give them what do i do right all of this knowledge and these the responsibility mothers often carry, I think, right. Being able to have your partner also be concerned and do the research and take the responsibility rather than deferring right um, to us. So I don't know that it just feels like it's a big part of the matrescence experience that I think makes it harder.
1: Totally, I think that maternal gatekeeping thing is really interesting because I think that. Um. yeah, it's tough if your partner hasn't shown that they're able to attune in the way that you might expect them to. And I think like, yes, mothers maybe um, n- need to to like unattune, <laughs> what's the word? <laughs> For, like our hypervigilance, which especially yeah. when it's like culturally conditioned um, is certainly something that we can look at. But I, I sometimes think like when mothers take on the, like this, this kind of emotional and spiritual and mental labor for their families, like we see it as like, uh, now I'm a bad feminist too, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that there aren't just, you know, I haven't like whiteboarded enough, um, the chore charts for everyone. <laughs> yeah. you no, know? and I think like, It's so much more complicated, complex, and nuanced than that. It's not just, quote-unquote, just maternal gatekeeping, right? I think there's so much more to to why we take on the load that we do. And it doesn't make us bad feminists. And it is like extremely adaptive in a lot of ways.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: It makes so much sense why we take on all that load and... There's a point at which we can't anymore and it needs to be shared. But even that is a process. And I think like that's something I've been learning and relearning and relearning is like, it's going to take a lot of time for my partner mm-hmm. to understand all the things that are going on in my mind on any given moment um, to kind of attune to and manage our family and household. And it's not going to happen with a whiteboard. It's not going to happen tomorrow mm-hmm. or even maybe this year. It's yeah. a journey.
0: It's yeah. a whole thing. It takes a long time. I think that's that's true. Um, the sort of unlearning and the learning um, that happens. Well, I could keep talking to you. I mean, I, like, I have so many more things I'd love to chat with you about, but I, I don't want to take any more of your time. Um, so why don't you just tell us a little bit about kind of where we can find you and maybe some of the projects that you've got going on? Yeah,
1: certainly. Awesome. Yeah. So uh, my website is uh, jessieherald.com jessyherald.com and I hang out on Instagram, love hate relationship, you know, but it's jessie.es.herald. Um, it's my Instagram. And so I hang out there. And uh, yeah, I also have a newsletter. So if people are interested in kind of hearing more from me, they can subscribe to that. It's just once a month. Just once a month. <laughs> and I guess the really exciting thing that's going on for me right now is that I have a book coming out. Um, and you're literally talking to me in the week that the title is being like sort of laid in stone. Right now it's titled Mother Shift, Reclaiming Motherhood as a Rite of Passage. That might change a little. We're going to find out. Um, but it's coming out in fall 2024 with Shambhala Publications. And I'm really excited about that. So we can stay tuned for that book to come out. Um, yeah, I think that's about it.
0: That's so exciting about the book. Maybe we'll have you back on uh, in a year or so to to promote it if if you'd like. But um, very excited. love the work you're doing. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I feel the same way about you, Erin. I'm so glad that I also
1: found you on Instagram and just feel so much resonance with the work you're doing. It's really important.
0: Thank you. That's the show. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Feminist Mom Podcast. Thank you to my guest, Jessie Harold. If you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to subscribe and leave a review to help me reach more feminist moms out there. You can find me on Instagram at feminist.mom.therapist or on my website, erinspartherapy.com. Until next time.